want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. I was talking to a friend of mine who had just, she's a filmmaker and a producer, and she had just finished a project that involved the Lauder family. And she said, why don't you take a look at Este? And it was literally one quick Google search. And I was like, oh my God, how can it be that nobody's written a novel about this woman? She's fascinating. Um, and, you know, um, I there's so, there's so much more to Este than meets the eye. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited to be joined with best-selling author Renee Rosen. I just want to give you all a little background. So try to imagine you are in Manhattan. Uh, you are on Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue. Get in your Upper East Side um, bubble of an imagination right now. But Renee is the USA Today best-selling author of The Social Graces, Park Avenue Summer, Windy City Blues. Okay, we're moving away from Manhattan there. White Collar Girl, What the Lady Wants, and Dollface. She is also the author of Every Every Crooked Pot, a young adult novel. She lives in Chicago. And right now she's actually working on a historical novel about Ruth Handler, the woman who invented the Barbie doll, which couldn't have come at a better time. I mean, Renee. Oh, well, I first, know. hi, Renee. <laughs> hi, how are you? Good. Well, first, did you know that they were filming this Barbie movie? You know, it, it's funny because I have wanted to tell the Ruth Handler story for years before there was any talk about a Barbie movie. And um, and it just the time wasn't right for me to to go to that book. And so after I finished Estee, I was like, OK, I got to do the Ruth Handler story. Got to do it. Yeah. And, it's and Ruth Handler, when is she really creating? I know we're going to talk about Estee Lauder. Don't worry. But yeah. when is R Ruth Handler creating the Barbie doll? So it was in 1959. And. It, it people I was just fascinated to find that Barbie was inspired by a novelty gag doll uh, uh, based on a prostitute or a gold digger in Germany oh, called wow. Build Lily. And if you saw the Build Lily doll next to the original Barbie doll with the ponytail and all, you'd be like, what's the difference? So it, it's really interesting. But I'll tell you this much. This is my promise to readers. Like whether you love Barbie and played with her or you shaved off all of her hair in a fit of protest, this book will speak to the feminists out there. Um, there's a reason Barbie's waist is so thin, tiny, and it has nothing to do with that body image. It's a very practical reason. It's the same reason why she has a size three foot and not a size seven foot. There's a lot of optical illusion going on there. Oh, I'm excited. So when is your novel about Barb about Ruth Handler coming yeah. out? Um, I'm working on it now. It's slated for spring of 2025. 
Ooh. Okay. Well, you're coming back here to talk about that. Okay. Because okay. I, I had an obsession with Barbie dolls and I loved um, creating imaginative scenarios, especially play acting with them because I have a background in theater. So mm -hmm. that was like my direction with it. And I'm also curious, this film is going to be so satirical and it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a pun in itself, right? It's oh, just yeah. mocking the genre of Barbie. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But Renee had asked me what had gotten me into Estee Lauder. And if you don't know, Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl is a historical fictional retelling of Estee Lauder. Um, but it really is so fascinating to me, Renee, because first I had really learned a lot about Elizabeth Arden and um, Helena Rubinstein's feud. I mean, yeah. They weren't really feuding, but these two beauty magnet women, it sparked a lot of material with the war paint musical. So I saw yeah. that musical um, and really was fascinated with what's behind these self-made women, but these beauty magnets and how they really use the industry to their advantage, right? Like, because it is such a feminine quote unquote industry especially in that early 20th century, how do they make a mark as an entrepreneur? And like, I'm always fascinated with entrepreneurial narratives, but especially what women did in terms of almost subverting the beauty industry. And yeah, yeah so that's how Estee Lauder, I mean, isn't there that quote, is it Estee Lauder a family company? Yeah, very much yeah. so. Yeah, that's like the, um business motto but you know what drew you to Estee Lauder well I had just finished uh working on the social graces and you know the next thing is always what are you going to write next as soon as you finish and I really didn't have any ideas and I was talking to a friend of mine who had just she's a filmmaker and a producer and she had just finished a project that involved the Lauder family and she said why don't you take a look at Estee and it was literally one quick Google search. And I was like, oh my God, how can it be that nobody's written a novel about this woman? She's fascinating. Um, and, you know, um, I there's so, there's so much more to Estee than meets the eye. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where 
He's writing a book, teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code IvoryTower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. And I've, as I'm starting to, you know, the book is out next Tuesday. And as I'm starting to, you know, prepare and everything, I realize how difficult a book this is to talk about without giving away spoilers. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit like Fight Club. You know, if you know Estee's story, the first rule is we don't talk about Estee's story, you know? Um, so I, I find myself sort of tiptoeing around things. That, well, uh, what's exciting is as this comes out, your book is out in paperback. It's wait, it is out in paperback, right? Or just hardcover? No, paperback. 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 Okay. Yeah. So it's a beautiful cover with yeah. a glamour yeah. model in a way. One of those, is this a department store model or one who would be at a makeup counter? You know, I don't know where they found that image, but I really, we we struggled with the cover for a while. And when they came up with this, I was like, oh my God, I love it. Um, and you know, she could be the narrator. She could be, you know, any woman. Um, but I, it, you know, it was important to me that they incorporated Estee blue, that, you know, beautiful blue color. And I thought they, yeah. they just treated it so well. They did a wonderful job. And yeah. also, do you know who's narrating your audio, the audiobook version? Yeah, it's, um, oh, it's Hillary. I'd have to look it up, but um, but we picked her from a, a group of auditions. We oh, and wonderful. I've heard a snippet of it, and it's really good. Yeah, and well, you know, like narrator makes or breaks those books, of course. And I think for everyone out there, because this is a historical retelling, it's important for everyone to realize what's fascinating is you hook us right away with your prologue and. It's almost this frame narrative of a, what I love, like the Canterbury Tales or Scarlet Letter. Like there's this story within the story, but you as the writer, Renee, there's also a biographer who's writing an Estee Lauder biography. And then that's how Gloria, our fictional character, comes to find out that this biography is happening Estee does not approve of the biography, but the biographer doesn't care and is going to go ahead on the unauthorized version, which happens all the time. Um, and like, how did that all start in your mind, Renee? Like, oh, I have to really jump ahead before I actually begin with Estee Lauder's rise to fame. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, the writing process is is very um very curious land. I don't outline. Um, I don't know how dots are going to connect. Um, I, you know, I knew that 
I wanted that book to be my jumping off point only when my narrator came on the page and started talking to me. I didn't have a clue that I was going to do that until the first words, you know, I do my research. I started, I, you know, feel like I have enough of a foundation to sit down and write. And I started writing. And the first thing Gloria said to me was, I cannot tell a lie, although that's not entirely true. And I thought, oh, I, I want to follow. Where is this going to go to? And then, you know, it, it turns out and, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about Lee Israel, who was the real life biographer and, you know, I don't know if you want me to give a little background on that. Yeah, please, please do. Okay, so Lee Israel in 1984, she was a very successful, accomplished biographer. And um, she had a New York Times bestseller. And her publisher, Macmillan, threw a lot of money at her to write the unauthorized biography of Estee Lauder. And, um, you know, when uh, when Lee Israel starts doing her um her sort of deep dive into all things Estee, she finds that some things are not washing. And when Estee catches wind of the fact that Lee Israel is doing a, bi a biography on her, Estee moves right into damage control and starts writing her own book because she has to control the narrative. She's gonna have to explain some things that Lee Israel may raise and so it's literally these two women racing towards publication. And, you know, Estee wins that race by about three weeks. Random House puts out her book before Macmillan can get the Lee Israel book out. Um, yeah. And that it just seemed like that could be a device for the jumping off point for Gloria to, you know, when, when Lee Israel knocks on Gloria's door and says, tell me about your friend Estee, um, that's sort of the uh the point where uh Gloria can go back and start recounting their story because she can't tell Estee's story without throwing herself under the bus too well and that's what I love about the way uh research is done but especially with such high profile people like I'm even thinking there was that unauthorized biography of Anna Wintour that just came out like a year ago um and like that was in my mind when I was reading your historical retelling. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm always attracted to how a biographer has to piece together a narrative through interviews, through the acquaintances. But like, you really want to get to that person. Like you, if you could get that sit down with Estee Lauder, I mean, what would that have been like, Renee, if you actually were able to talk with Estee Lauder? If I was able mm -hmm. to? Um, I think I would get the book that she wrote, you know, Estee, and it, it's interesting because makeup, I think that Estee and Helena Rubenstein and Elizabeth Arden are all sort of metaphors for the industry that they shaped, you know, makeup in and of itself is used to contour, it's used to camouflage, it's used to embellish, to enhance. And here were three women who were just that embellishing and enhancing of their own persona um, was very natural for them. So I think had I sat down with Estee, I would have gotten the exact same story that she has had very carefully crafted for herself. Um, you know, when I went through and I read Lee Israel's book and Estee's book, A Success Story, you, you could kind of see the the dance between the two of them. Yeah, well, and I think 
what's so fascinating is even Este is a character. I mean, her real name was Josephine Esther Menser, and she comes from a Hungarian and checklist. Oh, <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> it's Fight Club, Fight Club. We can't give any spoilers away. See, it's really tricky. I know. Well, I mean, in her biography, you find out right. that she's from but a Jewish background. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, if you know Estee's background, great. Just we don't talk about it. <laughs> but I think it does remind me of Joan Rivers and like even Joan Rivers creates a persona with her name. Yeah. And it is, Estee is very different than, I mean, Elizabeth Arden did come from, I think, a farming family from Canada. Right. Um, so she was not from a legacy family. She wasn't Paris Hilton, who was an influence, like a socialite. Right. Right. Um, but how was it to try to think of Estee Lauder and retelling her story with her immigrant background? Because it is a very different narrative than if you wrote about Elizabeth Arden, for example. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I write, I... I get enough of a foundation of who my characters are. And then I literally take my hands off the steering wheel and I let them tell me their stories. So, you know, Este and Gloria really were on this journey and I was just eavesdropping, um, you know, their, their conversations, their friendship, which is, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say there were frenemies, but there was competition. There was love between them, but there was still some competition there. Um, so, you know, I I learned uh, that the less I can impose my will upon characters, whether real or fictional, the better off I am. Yeah, and I'm just curious, are you a fan of The Devil Wears Prada? You know, I never read the book. I, I saw that I loved the movie. And, you know, in fact, when I wrote uh, uh, Park Avenue Summer, which was about Helen Gurley Brown, when she first took over Cosmopolitan magazine, as told from the point of view of her secretary, early reads or anything, people were like, this is like Mad Men meets the Double Wears Prada. This is a Double Wears Prada meets Mad Men. So after we heard it like three or four times, we're like, okay, that's just how we're going to package this. So yeah, you listen to the people. Yeah, I did read the book. I enjoyed the nuances of the book. But I think what's sparking my imagination with your work, Renee, is like, to me, you are the modern Edith Wharton. Like, I, oh my I'm, goodness. A, I'm a literary scholar and I love teaching the House of Mirth. And I went to the Mount in um, Lenox. And I feel like Edith Wharton, though, she's on the inside and kind of became a taboo writer because... That's not what delicate, polite women were supposed to do, right? She's not right. supposed to be a published writer. Like, right. She exposed, so she's just, she exposed yeah. her own, right? Yeah, she gossiped on her own people. Yeah. Um, well, like what I love is, you know, what even just draws you to these Manhattan scenes, to what we always think of as the glossy Saks Fifth Avenue, the lifestyle the brand that Estee Lauder's embracing, like what she's creating. Well, so it's, there's a couple things there. I love an underdog. I love someone who's got the odds stacked so against them. And, you know, 
I because I'm always rooting for those people. They have a vision and everybody's telling them, no, it can't be done. And and they find a way anyhow. Um, so there's part of it's that. Part of it, and this is not to be self-deprecating or anything like that, but nobody is out there waiting for the next Renee Rosen book. I, you know, if somebody asked me, what's your next book about? It's so much easier to say Estee Lauder, the Barbie creators, than it's a woman who goes to Manhattan and you know what I mean? So I, I kind of have always relied on sort of a brand name to write about so that I could literally tell you what my book's about in one, you know, just one quick sentence. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting? television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Um, so I'm, I'm always attracted to that sort of, um, sort of larger than life, uh, character, but somebody who has had a really, um, uh, a, an interesting path to becoming the person that we associate them with. Mm. Well, is that why historical fiction, it just draws you in Renee, because it is all about the real meets the imaginary like you do need that research process you actually have to dig deep into the archive like you're not just i mean building an imaginary world i've interviewed gregory Maguire. like wicked is its own involves a lot of steps but you know historical fiction it makes sense you're talking about how the brand attracts you as a linchpin in a way yeah um, you know, I mean, I'm just fascinated by history. I think there's so much that we can learn and apply it to where we're at today. So it's amazing how much things change and don't change. Um, 
So I've, I've always been attracted to that. I don't think I set out to necessarily write historical fiction. It just seems to be what I'm continuously drawn to. You know, and I love I, taking yeah. a subject that I know very little about and then just getting lost in it. Well, I was going to say, I know that you live in a Chicago, but it does seem like New York City, for some reason, is a mystery or an enigma, especially these upper echelon society women. Like, it's sparking a imaginative process for you. What is it about this Upper East Side lifestyle that attracts you? Well, I mean, I've always had a love affair with New York and um, maybe it's because I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I don't know, but I did live in New York for a short period of time. Um, and I, you know, things that can only happen to you in New York will happen to you in New York. The people you meet, the, you know, there's just opportunities there. Um, and there's just something about, um, I, you know, London's great, and but there's something about Manhattan that is just so rich with stories. And, you know, nobody goes to, nobody moves to New York because they want an easy lifestyle. You know, <laughs> you, you just don't. You go to New York because you got a dream, a burning dream. And those who make it, um, I'm just fascinated by their stories, you know, and, and, you know, people, I think people still associate with, you know, New York is sort of the best of the best in terms of, you know, when it comes to certain fields, you know, that you had to be in New York, you know, with uh, the internet machine and all that, you know, we, it's, there's people working remotely now, but there's still that cachet about New York. Well, and isn't it so fascinating that all these female beauty magnets, you don't think of Los Angeles, like, right, that's Hollywood, that's TV yeah. and film. Yeah. Like, why do you, why is that, um, I grew up in South Jersey and right by Philly. So like, I remember my Nana talking about gimbals and like that department store aesthetic. And I've always loved the, um, perfume cologne section like just the aesthetic of a department store like there's nothing I mean sadly now it's changed shape but there was nothing like just going from designer to designer and say a Saks Fifth Avenue and just imagining like it's always you putting yourself in a new persona like oh maybe I could be that Ralph Lauren model. Maybe I could fit this lifestyle. And it's full of dreams in a way. Like fashion is a dreaming industry. And it seems like so is beauty. Like you're saying, they're masking usually their real identity. It's it's transformation. You know, you put on a particular outfit and you you instantly feel better. You know, you woman puts on her lipstick and she's like, okay, I can go face the world now. You know, like during World War II, that was like a sign, your red victory, red lipstick. That that was a sign of patriotism. And, you know, we are sort of walking billboards for ourselves, you know, and how you present yourself is sort of reflective of how you feel about yourself. And, um, so why why it was focused in New York 
why were so many things focused in New York? You know, it, in, in the United States, that was certainly like the fashion capital. And so it makes sense. Um, I, I don't know why, uh, why it was centered there. I really don't. Maybe like the density of the people, because you're on display a lot, right? I mean, like you're going to encounter more people in your day-to-day -day life. Could be. And just, you know, um, there are more opportunities for mm -hmm. socializing, for going to restaurants, you know, all of that. And, you know, women had their a little bit of disposable income that, you know, even in the worst of times, a woman would always, you know, $2 for a lipstick. Yeah, I can afford that. You know, during the depression, it was, and they've shown that in times of, you know, financial hardship, the sale of lipstick goes up because it's something that gives somebody a lift. Um, mm. So and you have, oh, so, and I was going to oh. say, in the theater industry of New York City, there's such a, um, the theatricality. Like, I feel that Broadway just electrifies Manhattan. Like, you don't have to be in Times Square to feel the energy in every neighborhood of, yeah. it's like the streets become a stage. I mean, that's why I love New York well, City. And and each neighborhood is so very different. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I lived there, I wanted to conquer all of New York. I wanted to know each pocket of New York. And it's so funny because when I go back there now, I'll call a friend who maybe lives in Chelsea and say, hey, we're going to meet on the Upper East Side. And they're like, I don't really know that area. I only know my my area, you know. Um, so, uh, but I, I do think it's a fascinating city. It's got a great energy, um, you know it's it's tough though you know there were there were days i would have like emotional lack of equilibrium you know some days were great some days were whoop. so yeah but i never yeah. knew what the day was going to hold it's true it's such a surprise of what's going to happen when yeah. you walk out that door yeah and city. i also love in new york it's very hard to call attention to yourself in new york <laughs> you know what i mean it's like you could wear just about anything and that's fine. I remember I had this hat, this very big hat, almost like the hat on the that the girl is wearing on the cover of the book. Yeah. You know, yeah, the yeah. big rim. And I bought it in New York and I wore it all the time. I came back to Chicago, I wear it, and people are like, What are you doing with it? You got like an LP on your head. Like everybody was so put off that I would wear this hat. So the hat's in my closet now. Oh. Well, it's even like when I take the train back to Long Island or even go to Jersey, but you were just in Manhattan, that suburban energy you feel too. It's um, like you're saying, Renee, there's so much experimentation in Manhattan or in Brooklyn or in Queens that, especially I would say now like Brooklyn and Manhattan, a lot of experimenting going on with fashion and um, creativity. You could be 30 minutes outside the city and you draw attention to yourself. It's, yeah, it's fascinating how that happens. But um, I was just in Soho, which is one of my favorite. Like if, mm. I always say, if anyone just wants to see the new designs, it doesn't involve any money. Like just go into every boutique and explore the new collection. Like there's nothing like seeing what's the newest trends. And- yeah. You know, anything goes, like you said. The fashions are all over the place. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back to 
you having to balance, I feel, the 1980s and then the 1930s into the 40s, like that into the World War II era is difficult. Like, how was that trying to even think about Esta's story and moving back and forth of how she would be feeling? Um, you know, again, it's it's one of those things where, you know, because I don't outline, I just have to kind of follow my gut. And there were just sort of natural times when I'm like, okay, because, you know, the bulk of the book takes place in during the Depression going into the 40s. And, you know, we touch upon World War II, although it's not a World War II story, but, you know, we were definitely impacted back in the States. Um, but there were just certain points where it was like, okay, now we need to go back into 1984 and see where where we're at. So it was sort of this, you know, kind of ebb and flow. And it wasn't really thought out in terms of every few chapters, I'm going to, you know, go back into the, I'm going to, you know, fast forward into 1984 and then go backwards. Yeah. How did you find actually figuring out who Estee Lauder, I mean, Gloria is our fictitious character, almost like a House of Mirth, um, you know, Lily Barr, even though it's not that same trajectory, thank goodness. Uh, no spoilers, but it's not that tragic at the end. Um, do you find, though, it was difficult to figure out, oh, Esther would have known um, or been in touch with this department store or her products would have been located here. She would have known these beauty people like these were her connections and networks. Um, you know, Estee was so driven, you know, she was selling 24 seven. And, um, I think that she just went where she did go where the money was, you know, she, she, her, she was always courting these wealthy women. Those were the clientele that, you know, she wanted. And, you know, in the wintertime, they all went down to Florida. So Estee packed up her son and went down to, um, Palm beach and Miami Beach and start working the beauty salons there and working the hotels there. Um, so I think she just had sort of a nose for where where the sales were gonna be. And that, you know, and getting into Estee's mindset, if she was so driven to succeed and she was so tenacious, she wasn't gonna waste her time anywhere that was not going to lead to either a sale or a door opening for her. So, um, so I think it was just her drive that sort of acted as, as a guide for where she would go, what she would do, how, uh, you know, what her, uh, her motivation was. Yeah. Did you have literally her voice in your ear? Like, did you listen a lot to her dialect or how she would deliver messages? Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And... 
She makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at That OL Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giants starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? I, I, I got a feel for her, her mostly from her own book and from her son's memoir. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now on um, the company we keep. That really gave me a feel for who she, who she was, both as a mother and as how she wanted to perceive or she wanted to be perceived. Mm. So, um, you know, I was able to sort of piece it together that way. There's not a lot of... Uh, videoed interviews with Estee. There's a lot of written interviews and I would read those, but again, she kind of had her story down and certain details shifted here and there, but she basically had her narrative down. Um, and I, she was very guarded. You know, nobody knew when her birthday was. So one of her friends said, I don't even think the FBI knows how old Estee Lauder is. So um, I, I think they finally uh, said it was 1908, but sometimes it was 1909, maybe it was 1910. So she always sort of uh, wanted to be perceived as younger than she was, you know, which is so many women do that. No big, no big deal there. Um, but, uh, but she did not give a lot of like on camera type interviews. Mm. Yeah, which I think says a lot about her protecting 
her yeah. boundaries and her yeah, image. That's fascinating. She yeah. had it with everything though. She also had it with her products. You know, they were all, all of them were very secretive about their ingredients. Um, and I don't think anyone other than Joe and then later Leonard knew, um, you know, what actually went into her, uh, her, her face creams and lotions and other things. But I will tell you this, she had, this was a funny little uh, fact that uh, that came out of the research. She had a client that was down in, I think it was Palm Beach and she uh, wanted a bunch of Estee's face creams. And so Estee told her, it's very humid down there. You need to store it in your refrigerator. So the woman was having a luncheon the next day and the cook mistook the face cream for salad dressing and put it on the salads and they all ate it. They all ate it. Nobody got sick, which Essay said, see, my stuff's so pure, you could eat it with a spoon. And I guess it didn't taste half bad. So Yeah, that's great, Brandon. That's a good publicity stunt yeah, too. Yeah. Well, and have you heard from the Estee Lauder um, family, from anyone tied to Estee Lauder about your book? Like, have do they know, have they reached out to you about? They, they have not reached out. I'm pretty sure they're they're aware of the book, um, but I have not heard from anybody directly. You know, I've talked to people that worked for Estee Lauder, but uh, nobody that's directly involved with the family. Yeah, well, I was surprised that it's been about 20 years since she passed away, right? Around... Yeah. She almost lived to a hundred. Which... So we're, we're coming up on the anniversary of her death. It was April 24th. Well, and your book is coming out. Okay. <laughs> you know, things are connected. Um, well, what is something if Estee Lauder was face to face with you that you would have loved to say to her after finishing your novel? Um, What... What I would like to say to her is that, you know, despite how she may have gotten there, there's no denying what she accomplished. Mm. I mean, she was a trailblazer and I loved her moxie and just her sheer chutzpah and how she just broke down every obstacle. And my goodness, she is now the second largest cosmetic brand company in the world. Wow. And, you know, everything from uh, Clinique, Aveda, Bobby Brown, Joe Malone. I mean, there are dozens of brands that fall under the Estee Lauder umbrella. And she she always wanted to be a household name. And it's like, I think that she would just be delighted to see where where she took this dream of hers where where how far it's gone i mean this is a woman who literally started making face creams out of her upper west side apartment and then hocking her wares in beauty shops and look at what she's done yeah that's a legacy yeah but like you said it's not your novel you know it's historical fiction but it details in order to create a brand like that there's going to be a ton of obstacles and also you get messy at points. Yeah. Yeah. There's no easy trajectory to. And, and the, the, yeah. the fact of the matter is the beauty industry, there's a lot of ugliness under the surface of the beauty industry. 
Yeah. It was You're literally covering up blemishes. Yeah. Many. I mean, it was very competitive, you know, just to get a little bit of counter space in a store like Saks Fifth Avenue. That was really tough. You know, you had to really prove that you, you deserved that counter space, you know? So they were, they were, it was very cutthroat. Yeah. Well, and my last question before I urge everyone to get their hands on Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl is, did you test out different products for inspiration as you were writing your novel? Oh, I've always, I've always used Estee products. So, you know, others too, but I've always loved some of her fragrances. I used to wear white linen all the time. Um, so yeah, you know, and I have my little gift with purchase, which was an Estee innovation. You know, she really created that, but, um, yeah, I, I think she's got great skincare products. Those are probably my favorite of hers are the skincare products. Yeah, well, I'm urging everyone out there. I feel that your novel would be wonderful for those who teach Edith Wharton, that this would be a great, like, taking this into the 20th century or even with the great Gatsby self. I mean, talk about someone who tries to become a self-made man with his, he has all his lies. But, you know, I think to have the male and the female perspective, a figure like Estee Lauder, we need more novels like you, uh, yours, Renee, because there aren't as many to point to of a historical retelling of a woman who really creates her vision and is not going to let anything stop them. But especially with her background, that is all revealed. It's <laughs> all, 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 all the interstitial aspects are revealed. Well, this has been wonderful. I definitely think this is the spring and summer book we've all been waiting for. So uh, thank from, you, Renee. From your mouth to readers ears. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and where can everyone follow you on social media, Renee? So uh, I'm on uh, Facebook, Renee Rosen Author. Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, and you can always go to my website, ReneeRosen.com. I'm doing a lot of virtual events. In fact, I'm doing a virtual event with uh, the Makeup Museum. There's a makeup museum in New York. And we're doing a virtual event on uh, Tuesday at noon. So you can find the link and all that uh, on my website. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful meeting you, having this chance to, you know, explore a little Estee Lauder and journey back into our imagination. So I'm excited for everyone out there to reach out to me and to you, especially Renee, about how their book, how your book sits with them and just this fictional realm that they get to occupy. It's a delight to read your novels. So Aww. thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. It's been fun talking with you. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. You Bye, too. Renee. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. 
Follow our Facebook page, The Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. And thanks to an amazing team. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. And thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room spring interns. Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Sheila, and Rosie. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room.